Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back. I'm Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zook. And Josh Bashan. Today, we're going to talk some about double cropping in Oklahoma, which might be a new term for some of you all if you're not from the southern states where we have longer growing seasons. But typically in Oklahoma, we like to plant winter wheat and that gets harvested sometime between the end of May through the middle of June. And we end up deciding if we want to just leave that ground fallow or go into a different crop. Some of those crops can be soybeans or sesame and those are kind of the two I think we want to talk about today, uh, a couple of broadleaf options. Dana, when it comes to soybeans in Nebraska, what are you used to, when are you used to those crops going in? So, you know, the growing season in Nebraska is, I mean, I don't know how much less it is, but it's quite a bit shorter than it is here in Oklahoma. So typically you don't see a double crop soybean hardly ever. Um, uh, so soybeans go into the ground, you know, same time as corn does sometime in April, uh, but I, you know, I, they harvest wheat in Nebraska around July 4th. I always say that. And so it's, it just makes it really tough to make those types of crops work. Yeah. Growing up, I always felt like we were failing if we were still cutting wheat on July 4th or something went wrong <laughs> because we were pretty far behind. Uh, beginning to watch fireworks from the combine cab was always interesting Yeah, yeah. as a, as a young kid, but yeah, like I've planted soybeans what I would call full season already. Uh, and those went in about the end of J- April, April 20th or so in that time frame. So Josh, if I'm thinking about, I planted four twos and four fives in April, and would I be looking at a different type of a maturity group if I was going to plant, say around the June 20th time frame, or do I go out with the same one? Uh, it, a little bit depends on the source, but for the most part, guys are for double crop looking at a between a four, six to four, eight, maybe as high as five. Okay. What does that mean, guys? I don't know what Uh, that means. (laughs) Number system for maturity group. Kind of depends on how long it's going to be more indeterminate or it keeps on putting on flowers or if it's more determinate, sets its flowers Uh, and then stops uh, or does its vegetation growth in flowers. But indeterminates, we're going to be setting vegetative uh, stages throughout as it's blooming. So, which... We used to have kind of a break in the number system, but usually the the lower the number, the quicker it is to go through its life cycle. So the higher the numbers, usually more full season. But like I said, even in double crops, we're still looking at those upper fours uh, for most of North, Northwest Oklahoma. Okay. Well, sorry to interrupt you because no. I, I don't know. I, that's kind of a new term for me. Majority groups can kind of be mysterious uh, because... We're talking about daylight length or nighttime length when, when it comes to a soybean flowering. And that's that's kind of depends on where you're at and how that, that all gets influenced. But that's basically what we're trying to tackle is the length of the day. And, yeah, and, and that technically it is the length of night. Uh, if you've ever seen soybeans growing close to a city near a stoplight or a streetlight, you'll see those uh, will stay greener longer and not start to senesce. Huh. Uh, so it's... Not just day length, but like you said, Trent, nighttime length is really a bigger trigger, I believe. Yeah. And it's like early on in Oklahoma, if you're planning, you know, in that April time frame, 
I've even heard people trying to go with late threes, like a three eight or a three nine, trying to get that crop to mature and flower before August heat. Yeah. And then, but double crop, we're doing something completely different with that. We're trying to push that crop through the August heat to flower afterward, right? Correct. And just like some guys I might be more familiar with, something like grain sorghum or milo, uh, we don't want it to be reproductive during the heat late summer. So either try to race, get it out before, or like we're doing now, try to make it go later, closer to the fall, uh, which is another thing for guys wanting to double crop if they're wanting two crops every year, uh, the later you go, the later you're going to be to plant your wheat again. Uh, so some guys are starting to go to summer crops and then back to a winter wheat. Uh, so they'll leave it winter fallow and then maybe come back with corner grain sorghum the next year. So uh, the maturity group, definitely we want to prevent it from happening during the heat of the summer. Yeah. It's also interesting to me when you look at those different maturity groups, One a 4-2 planted in April might not necessarily act the same as a 4-2 planted in June in terms of its growth habit and, and how bushy that plant can get or how tall that plant can get. Because the biggest problems I've run into with double cross if something happens where we get late in the year and I'm planting into July, but those beans just never get very big. And I have to think about... Uh, adjusting planting rate and everything like that try to get more plants out there because i know they aren't going to be out there very long they aren't going to get very big you can definitely see that in years where we have favorable growing conditions early in the summer like now where we have good moisture and starting to get some warmer temps uh sometimes you'll get deceived uh, later in the season you'll see that big lush crop out there but until you really get out there and look at it there might be bigger gaps between those pods along those inner nodes so you might have something that's waist high but it's going to be looking more like a forage crop instead of a, a grain crop. So uh, even though our double crops generally are a lot shorter, uh, they're usually stacked in there pretty tight as far as the pod load. So that can be deceiving as well. And residue management, you're talking about the height of the plant becomes a big uh, issue to think about as well, because you know that those beans are going to start setting pods just right next to the ground. So you want a level field and you want your straw to be managed correctly. If you're trying to plant into the straw and harvest through straw, I've seen big problems with big uh, straw windrows where we didn't get our chaff spread very well at the later on that combines bulldozing straw trying to pick up the that's soybean plant because we're so close to the ground. Yeah, uh, obviously with a lot of our double crop acreage being predominantly no-till because we don't really have the time to work it up to get back to beans. So the soybean crop really starts with that harvest of the wheat crop. Uh, we've had some guys do really successful with using like a stripper header leaving all the straw out there standing. Uh, soybeans really do well when they get sunlight. Uh, so the more photoreception you're getting from the plant, the faster you get that early vigor. Uh, so you do see a little bit of lag early on, but with that longer stem out there, you're getting more ground coverage, sight, sunlight not hitting the ground. Uh, so you're able to retain more moisture. But like you said, at harvest, uh, that wheat straw likes to break off right there at the ground and you start pushing a ball instead of the sickle bar cutting through it. Uh, so we've had seen some guys revert back from those stripper heads, go back to a conventional head or even a draper head on their wheat, uh, maybe even cutting a little bit lower to get that soybean up to the sunlight a little bit quicker. Now that's kind of similar to cotton in that standpoint. doesn't want a lot of competition right around that plant where it can get good photo reception. Now, also thinking about double crop, You've got some other concerns to worry about. Wheat's a grass. 
and the herbicides we use on grasses can sometimes interfere with soybeans being a broadleaf. So do you have any recommendations there? Uh, with wheat, obviously we're uh, looking at a lot of group two herbicides. Uh, so there are going to be some plant back restrictions on those. Uh, so group two ALS or SUs, uh, even some of our uh, traded products like Beyond uh, for clear field wheat, uh, that's going to have a plant back restriction to soybeans. So being aware that if you are wanting to go to sub double crop soybeans, know your herbicide history and what those plant back restrictions are, because even something like finesse is going to push you back out of that window. Uh, but using some of those products that are still an issue, like Ally, is going to be quicker plant back. Uh, another newer product would be uh, Culex, which is uh, even has uh, shorter plant back restrictions, especially in no-till. Uh, so looking at those products when we're making those herbicide applications on our wheat definitely play a part in whether or not you can grow soybeans. Another big thing that even before you plant that wheat crop, knowing your field's pH. Uh, soybeans, like any other oilseed crop, is going to be more sensitive to those acidic soils. Once we get in those low fives, especially in the fours, soybeans are going to be lagging and vigorous uh, and vigor plant growth. So know that pH even before you plant the wheat if you're thinking about double crop beans. So do you get a different yield on double crop versus full crop soybeans? Is there a yield difference? Highly variable on the year. Sometimes okay. guys, even if it's not truly double crop after wheat, it's just late planted full season. Some guys are really liking that uh, plant in early May, mid-May, late May. Uh, but just depends on when we get the heat in the year and when we get the moisture. Uh, soybeans really like to drink water, but they're very heat stress tolerant. Uh, so that's one thing guys can't separate the two in their minds, but I think, well, if it needs a lot of water, it's not going to handle the drought stress either. But if we have a good year or a decent year on moisture, uh, it can handle quite a bit of heat stress as well. It's all about when it gets that stress. Yeah. Pod fill is the dangerous time for beans, and that's where we talk about the timing. And that's what's kind of nice about there not being a huge yield difference is that way you can stagger your planting windows and you can hedge some of your risks. That way you don't have all your crops coming maturing at the same time. But that's kind of a good segue here about halfway through uh, talking about heat stress and plants that are tolerant of that. What about sesame? As definitely more and more guys are thinking about it every year. Uh, it does have a favorable contract price on it, even this year. Uh, so it's kind of billed as a low input crop that makes some decent money on if we have a good year or even just a decent year. So Obviously, there's fewer markets available to it. Most of them are going to be direct contracted through that sesame buyer. Uh, so working on those contracts before you even buy the seeds is going to be the first step. But sesame has been looking very favorable in northwest Oklahoma, as long as we don't have issues with careless broadleaf weeds like ragweed or pigweeds, water hemp, because uh, we don't really have a lot of broadleaf herbicide control options in sesame. Yeah, pre-emerge about the only option we have when it comes to sesame. But, you know, for some of those producers that have thought about wanting a summer crop and soybeans, you may be a little too far west or a little too dry. I think that's where sesame starts fitting in pretty well. But it's a very tiny seed. You think about, you know, sesame seed on top of your hamburger bun. That's exactly what we're dealing with. That's exactly what we're planning. So getting drills calibrated is kind of like what the struggles we saw with canola. 
yeah. getting drills calibrated for that low seeding rate because you're talking about seven dollar a pound uh, seed cost. So you go a little over, a little too much over, and it costs a lot pretty quick. And and we used to think of you know soybeans being kind of a high cost, high reward crop, and sesame's being a low cost, low reward crop. But I'm, sesame's coming to its own in terms of being able to to put some pretty fantastic yields out there. And just depending on the rain we get. So I don't think we're hampering ourselves either way when it comes to which one we choose, just trying to hedge some of our risk and planting different crops and, and trying to spread out that harvest window. Oh, yeah. Is there a concern, you know, harvesting with a, your typical combines with sesame? Or, I mean, do you just have to change the settings and all that? I mean, do producers need to think about that too? Uh, with that small seed, there are some challenges keeping the seed in the combine and not blowing it out the back or even just leaks and different fittings in the augers and bins. But uh, for the most part, most combines can be set to sesame using conventional auger type or draper height type platform headers. Uh, so for the most part, it's been doing fairly well just with the hmm. equipment we already have for wheat. It's quite an interesting looking plant when you drive by it. Yeah. I know when I first moved to Oklahoma and was down in kind of the, um, Southwest area of Oklahoma, and there were some there. And I thought, what is that? This is a strange looking plant, but yeah, pollinators tend to love it too. Mm -hmm. It flowers yeah. can discontinually all up the plant and and keeps going for a real long time through the summer. But yeah, I've I've enjoyed sesame. We talked about some issues with harvesting when it comes to soybeans being flat on the ground. Well, at least sesame, you can get your platform up a little bit higher, like you're cutting wheat, so it's a little more uh, a little more familiar being able to cut higher off of the ground, but and some of those stalks can be tough on tires. I know that. <laughs> yeah. So you got to keep that in mind when you go running across there with your pickup <laughs> and thinking about some of that. But, um, you know, like you said, any color combine can cut sesame. You got to get that wind down and close off those that chaffer and that sieve and just work with your agronomist uh, and trying to figure out what kind of a sample that you're, you're bringing to town because it can be dirtier than you think, but there are limits to everything, you know, and and that all that seed gets uh, goes ahead and gets filtered or cleaned uh, down to food grade, so so they can take some trash with it. But you know, there, there's discount schedules just like with any crop, so you got to be careful when you're running it through the combine. And up till last year, we had some issues with it drying down naturally. Usually, had to wait for a freeze to really terminate the crop. But as of last year and continues this year, we're allowed to use glyphosate. For harvest aid on sesame so that helps us get it out in a more timely fashion so we don't get seeds staying out there longer than it should starting to have some issues with rancid oil inside the seed so obviously the buyer doesn't want that and test weight ends up hurting you real bad if you leave it out there too long so does the sesame that you're harvesting does it go into like sesame seed oil like all those products or is it just just the sesame seed on your hamburger buttons i'm trying to like think about that here a lot of it is now going into the oil industry, okay. which has helped quite a bit in terms of demand because it's easier to find uh, outlets for oil than just food grade top of your hamburger bun sesame, yeah. but still quite a bit of it goes just out as whole seed. So that's kind of something that's been a welcome sign in the U.S. is being able to crush it. Mm -hmm. And thinking about sesame a little bit further, uh, some of those costs, again, you know, with soybeans, you've got pretty decent phosphorus and sulfur requirement from that crop, depending on the yield. Sesame being an oil seed as well can have some of those same concerns, but soybeans are legumes, so they produce their own nitrogen, whereas sesame doesn't. 
you have any fertilizer recommendations when it comes to nitrogen for sesame, Josh? We have done some fertility trials with sesame several years ago. Uh, I want to say maybe over seven, eight years ago now um, when Dr. Chad Gossian was still here and Dr. Uh, Joe Armstrong, but uh, Brian Arnell is still here and he's helped did some of those early trials where nitrogen, as we started to increase those rates, we had a negative attribute on the oil quality of the seed. Uh, so overall, it doesn't take that much nitrogen. Uh, sometimes if we have a failed wheat crop, we have plenty of residual out there. We don't take much. Probably the biggest factors are going to be just like any other oil seed like we talked before, uh, soil pH and having good phosphorus potassium out there. Most of our soils have decent sulfur already in them because uh, we've been heavy on wheat for most of the soil production years as of late. So we don't have that drawdown on sulfur, uh, but it is something to look at. If you do have a situation where you need to put sulfur out, it could probably benefit as well. And remind me again, if I have residual nutrients in my field, what's the only way I can figure that out? With the soil sample. With the soil sample <laughs> that nobody, nobody really wants to have to do in the middle of June or July when it's extremely hot. But it is very important because, like I said, if too much nitrogen is, isn't necessarily a good thing with sesame. I think their wreck has been somewhere around 40 pounds or so, 30 to 40 pounds, depending on... If you're dry land or irrigated, most of what we talk about is dry land, but irrigated, you can push that a little bit higher uh, in terms of how much nitrogen and fertility you want to go out there with. Phosphorus is a percent sufficiency, correct? So it's yeah. not necessarily, uh, you can't just determine what the crop has taken off necessarily since it's a sufficiency index. So we got to definitely have a soil test in order to figure that out. Now, also, another thing that I've kind of thought about on my own farm, and I've done both, I have a planter and a drill, which is a curse because you just try to determine which one you need to hook up to on any given day. Mm -hmm. But yeah. talking about row spacings with soybeans and sesame, uh, any idea on which one would be best? Overall, it just depends on the state of your equipment. If it's obviously 30 years old, it's going to be harder to calibrate. For something like sesame, we're putting out such little seed, such small seed, at a low seeding rate. It's hard to cut them back sometimes to be uh, fine-tuned. So sometimes we have to go to a wider row spacing to be a little bit more even on that seeding rate, uh, more accurate. But soybeans, uh, for the most part, we've done uh, every row down to seven and a half, so all the way up to 30s, and there's not a huge difference. Uh, some guys prefer wider, some guys prefer narrower, but I haven't seen any data that really pushed me one way or the other. It's whether or not your equipment's capable of it. Yeah. What's nice, like in soybeans, if you're going to be spraying that crop quite a bit in season, 30-inch rows does allow you to drive down rows and not run over crop. But on the other side of that, if you're planting later in the year and those plants can't get as tall, you're going to be leaving real estate out there where sunlight's hitting the ground. And hear that a lot out in the panhandle where they're growing corn. You don't want any sunlight hitting the ground because that's basically what you're harvesting out there on that farm is sunlight. So kind of moving those rows a little bit closer together on double crop beans seems to to help some people out in terms of plant size and getting those plants spread out. You also got things to consider like canopy and trying to get that ground covered. But with sesame, what I've found is if you can shove those rows together and you concentrate those seeds in a narrower area, that tiny seed all pushing together in wider rows can have a better chance of getting out of the ground. Yeah. And I would say as the wider the row spacing is, either on beans or sesame, uh, 
the wider the rows, the more you're going to have to cut back that seeding rate because we don't want to overcrowd and have competition within the crop itself. So it's going to be more finicky on your seeding rate. You want to keep a tighter window on your seeding rate on um, those wider rows. But as we get narrower and narrower, we have a lot more flexibility uh, to up that seeding rate a little bit, just to be a little bit more cautious. And if we don't have a perfect stand, we can still compensate more uh, with those narrower rows. Now, when it comes to seeding rates, we haven't talked about that very much. And I can take the sesame part, but I might let you talk about soybean just a little bit. But, you know, sesame, uh, when we first started planting that in this area, you know, some of the wrecks were around five pounds the acre just because some of our old grain drills, it was hard to get them any narrower or any lower than that. And of course, if you can get it as low as five pounds the acre on seven and a half, if you went to 15s, you could half that and get down to two and a half. Well, and with planters, I've we've seen guys going all the way down to a pound and in some instances a little less than that, but it all depends on how many seeds you can actually get out of the ground. And yeah, and, and planting conditions is a big factor. Yeah. If we're, you know, destined in more or less, we're going to up that seeding rate, but if we have optimum conditions and planter look like it's working great, uh, good simulation, we can definitely drop that down quite a bit. The sesame is somewhere around 140,000 seeds per pound. And so you think about final plant stands whenever you're using those numbers. If you're planting three pounds, it's way more seed than you need, but very rarely do you get every single seed popping out of the ground with that crop, it, depending on the field conditions, of course. But what about soybeans? You got a general rex there? As far as soybeans, uh, start kind of backfiguring, like you just said, as far as looking at final plant stands. Uh, and when we're out there judging stands on whether or not we need to replant, usually that cutoff's going to be where between 60 and 75,000 plants per acre. So depending on your soil conditions at planting, you might dictate how much you need to plant. A lot of guys are getting by with dropping 75, 80,000 seeds per acre. Uh, but if we do have good conditions and we're shooting for a higher yield, bump that up closer to 100,000. If we have some producers bumping it all the way up to over 120, 140,000 seeds per acre, just ensure they have a good stand come harvest. Now, obviously that's gonna be a big factor on the input side, that's why a lot of guys try to cut that back as much as they're feeling comfortable to. But if you don't have a good stand on soybeans, that's going to be a direct driver on your yield at the end of the year. Well, I found that extremely interesting and I learned a lot, but we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg as far as double cropping crops or all of that. So if you need more information, I'd say we would direct you to your local county extension office. And I Speak on behalf of Josh and Trent, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the topics discussed, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.